This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If, uh, if you're a Christian, uh, your relationship with Christ is not meant to be stagnant, it's meant to make forward progress. Uh, forward progress in our walk with Christ doesn't come naturally to us. It's not easy, there's no autopilot for it. Uh, so we're gonna think about today <clears throat> four challenges, four challenges every Christian faces in their walk with Christ and how we should respond to those challenges. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how long you've been walking with Christ. These are four challenges that every Christian faces, regardless of the stage you're at in your journey um, with Jesus. Here are the four, and then we're going to look at them one at a time. Craving immediate results, avoiding adversity, skimming the surface, and overcomplicating the process. Craving immediate results, avoiding adversity, skimming the surface, and overcomplicating the process. Four challenges that every Christian faces in making forward progress in their walk with Christ. First, craving immediate results. How many of you remember the Pony Express? As an idea, a concept, not a personal experience. (laughs) Mail could be transported Uh, from St. Joseph, Missouri to Sacramento, California in just 10 short days. Far cry from Amazon Amazon Prime shipping, huh? Uh, In 1930, when traveling by train had reached its fastest, it would still take you four days to get from New York City to the West Coast. Today, you can fly nonstop from New York to LA in just six hours. When my wife and I first met, we had a long-distance relationship in which we corresponded traditional, via traditional letter writing and snail mail. If you're under the age of 25, let me explain this concept to you. <laughs> in the old days, when you wanted to correspond with someone, uh, you would get out a piece of paper, a pen, you would write a letter, you'd fold it up and put it what's in, inside what's called an envelope. You'd put an address on it, that's where the person lives, throw a stamp on it, and three or four days later, they would get your letter. And that's how we, we did it. Dozens, hundreds of letters that my girlfriend, my now wife, uh, wrote to each other. But then, of course, came email. And that was a game changer. Do you remember when email came out for the first time? If you're under the age of 20, let me tell you how it worked. It was all via what's called dial-up. Do you remember dial-up? You would make a few clicks on your computer, and then this is the funkiest thing. You would hear your computer dial a phone number. Your computer dialing a phone number. And once it connected to whatever was on the other side of that number, it would make a sound. Do you remember that sound? The most insanity-producing sound the human ear has ever heard. You wait a couple of minutes, you might see a bar go up, climb up to all the way to 100%, and the email would appear magically in your inbox. In those days, there was no high-speed internet. We weren't even thinking about wireless. 
Now, today, email <laughs> is on its way out. I'm telling you, it's on its way out. It's texting, Snapchatting, and some other newfangled things that I'm not even cognizant of at the moment. Instantaneous communication, right? Do you see the trend? Do you see the trend? Faster, 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 faster. We get what we want right away. We get what we want right away. Now, I'll admit there's some aspects to this fast travel and communication and shipping that I like. I'm sure there are aspects to it that you like as well. But when it comes to making forward progress in our walk with Christ, this is causing problems for us. It's causing problems for us. One of the challenges that we face in making forward progress in our relationship with Jesus is craving immediate results. We want what we want right away. Now, your relationship with Jesus is supposed to mature. And as genuine Christians, we should grow in our love for Jesus and our obedience to him. But this is not going to happen quickly. You're going to need to recalibrate your expectations and learn to be patient. Let me show you some of the ways in which the scriptures describe this. Galatians chapter 5, Paul writes, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So as we move forward in our walk with Jesus, Paul is saying that you should see change. Become people characterized by peace. We become people characterized by faithfulness and joy and self-control. But did you notice that the Apostle Paul describes this as fruit? There were a number of other words available to him. Traits, qualities, characteristics, all of those words were available to him, but he uses fruit as an umbrella descriptor for these nine qualities. Making forward progress with Jesus is like planting a seed and nurturing it so it eventually bears fruit. I don't know what fruit the original hearers would have had in mind. Perhaps grapes would have been one of those in the very brief research I did. It takes a minimum, <clears throat> a minimum of three years for a grape seed to then produce grapes. A minimum of three years. Some of the, uh, the articles were saying it, takes, it could take five, maybe even eight years before a grape seed actually produces fruit. Original hearers would have heard the term fruit and thought of these things, made these connections, that this is not gonna be something that happens quickly. So here it is, Christian change is more like growing a grapevine than it is downloading an app. Christian change is a whole lot more like growing a grapevine than downloading an app. Recalibrate your expectations and be patient. Be patient. It'll happen, but it's gonna take some time. Second, second challenge we face is avoiding adversity Vocabulary, the word for the day is hedonism. 
We live in a hedonistic culture. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure. Uh, Maybe more in a sophisticated way. It's the view, it's a worldview that says satisfaction of desires is the highest good and proper aim of human life. Pursuit of pleasure, it's the view that satisfaction of our desires is the highest good and proper aim of human life. Now, where do you see evidence of that in our culture today? (laughs) Maybe a better question is, where don't you see evidence of that today in our culture? How often is sensuality in the plot line of a movie or a TV show? This is how marketing works, right? Marketing either affirms a desire you already have or it helps to foster a desire you don't have. In either case, it says satisfying that desire is a good and noble goal to have. You're entitled to satisfy this desire. And we're bombarded with those messages every day every day. Satisfaction of our desires is the highest good and proper aim of human life. So what happens when pleasure-seeking people face adversity and suffering? What happens when pleasure-seeking people face adversity and suffering? We run from it. We try to get away from it. We beg for it to pass. Now as Christians, our approach to suffering ought to be nuanced. On the one hand, we recognize suffering was not part of the original creation. Suffering will not be part of the new heavens and the new earth. So when Christians suffer, it should cause us to have a homesickness for heaven, to long for it. I'm not saying Christians should cherish suffering or even look for ways to have more of it. But on the other hand, we have to remember passages like this. James chapter one, consider it pure joy. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. For the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. (laughs) Glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, in character, hope. We're not being encouraged to avoid adversity. We're not supposed to run from it. We don't even necessarily try to get rid of it as fast as possible. We mourn over it. We grieve over it while simultaneously leaning into it. We mourn over it. We grieve over it while simultaneously leaning into it. In the two passages I read, one thing becomes very clear. Avoiding adversity will stunt our growth as Christians. It will. Avoiding adversity will stunt our growth as Christians. Avoiding adversity will slow down your forward progress in your walk with Christ. Now, how can that possibly be? I think the writer of Hebrews gives us some clues Chapter 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, this word for race, you're running a race is the word agon, which is the Greek word we get our word agony from. Agony, the race is an agony. Some commentators also uh, 
say that this word for race was used in reference to, uh, in the original context, the pentathlon, which was the ultimate race in the climax of the Olympics in that time. The pentathlon included running and jumping, discus, javelin, and then a, a wrestling or boxing match. So if that's the imagery the author has in mind when it says that life is a race, the author's making a very vivid statement about the nature of our Christian walk. It's gonna, there's gonna be difficulty, there's gonna be suffering, there's gonna be agony. Life is an agonizing struggle. It ushers in a regimen of difficulty. Now later in the same chapter, in Hebrews, we're told that this agony or this discipline is for our good. So think about it for a minute. What in the athletic world may not be pleasant and pleasurable, but painful and unpleasant, but is necessary? Exercise. Right? Without exercise, the body can become weak and flabby. Trust me on that one. (laughs) Without exercise, the body is not able to handle the physical strains of life very well at all. Sufferings, adversity, hardships are necessary. They're necessary to strengthen and make healthy your faith, your patience, your grace, your contentment. In this way, sufferings are necessary. This is what adversity does. It taxes our hearts, it strains our minds, it fatigues our souls to improve their overall health. That's why we don't run from it. We embrace it, we grieve over it, we lean into it. Social psychologist Jonathan Haidt uh, had a hypothetical exercise. I want you to journey with me on this exercise. Picture yourself in it. He said, imagine that you have a child and for five minutes you're given a script of what will be in your child's life. Okay? It's a script, an entire script of your child's life. You're given an eraser. You can edit it. You can take out whatever you want. So you start reading the script. You read that your child will have a learning disability in grade school. Reading, which comes easily for some kids, will be laborious for yours. In high school, your kid will make a great circle of friends, and then one of them will die of cancer. After high school, your child will actually get into college, the college they wanted to attend. While they're there, they're gonna be in a car crash and your child is going to lose a leg and go through the difficulty of depression. A few years later, your your child will get a great job and then lose that job in an economic downturn. Your child will get married and then go through the grief of separation. So you get this script for your child's life and you have five minutes to edit it. What would you erase? Wouldn't you wanna take out all the stuff that would cause them pain? Height writes, he says, I'm part of a generation of adults called helicopter parents because we're constantly trying to swoop in into our kids' educational life, relational life, sports life, etc., to make sure no one is mistreating them, no one is disappointing them. We want them to experience one unobstructed success after another. One Halloween, a mom came to our door to trick or treat. 
Why didn't she send in her kid? Well, the weather's a little bad, she said. She was driving, so we didn't have to walk in the mist. Then he said, well, why didn't you just send your child to the door? I get you're driving, but why not just, well, he had fallen asleep in the car and she didn't want to have to wake him up. Jonathan says, I felt like saying, why don't you eat all his candy for him and get his stomach ache for him as well? Then he can be completely protected. If you could wave a wand, if you could erase every failure, every setback, every suffering, every pain, question, are you sure that's a good idea? Would it cause your child to grow up to be better, stronger, more generous? Is it possible that in some way people actually need adversity, setbacks, maybe even something like trauma to reach the fullest level of development and growth? I think from what we've read, God would say yes. This is precisely what we need. Avoiding adversity will stunt our growth as Christians. We need to learn to embrace it. Lean into it. Lean into it. Third challenge we face in making forward progress in our walk with Christ is skimming the surface. Um, Because it's such a prominent place in our um, day-to-day lives, um, I I always have on my reading list something regarding the internet or technology related to it. There's no shortage of those things. The internet is by far the most dominant non-personal force in our world today, without question. It's unrivaled in human history. And it's killing our ability to read the Bible the way it was meant to be read. Nicholas Carr wrote a fascinating book entitled The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. In it he writes this, by combining many different kinds of information on a single screen, the multimedia net further fragments content and disrupts our concentration. A single web page, for example, may contain a few chunks of text, a video or audio stream, a set of navigational tools, various advertisements, several small software applications. And we all know how distracting this cacophony of stimuli can be. We joke about it all the time. A new email message announces its arrival as we're glancing over the latest headlines at a newspaper's website. A few seconds later, our RSS feeder tells us that one of our favorite bloggers has uploaded a new post. A moment after that, our mobile phone plays the ringtone that signals an incoming text message. Simultaneously, a Facebook or Twitter alert blinks on screen. In addition to everything flowing through the network, we also have immediate access to all the other software programs running on our computers. They too compete for a piece of our mind. Whenever we turn on our computer, he writes this, we are plunged into an ecosystem of interruption technologies. Carr's thesis is that the internet has taught us how to be scavengers for bits of information. And the internet has also taught us not to think too long about any one subject or topic. 
In other words, the internet is such a dominant force in our lives that it has conditioned us to engage our world the same way we engage it, by skimming the surface. And that includes the Bible. The Bible was not meant to be read the way the internet is shaping us to read. It was not meant to be read the way the internet is shaping us to read. There are numerous examples of this. I'll read maybe the most famous, Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Interestingly, in the original, meditate means to to mumble, to talk out loud to yourself. You ever talk out loud to yourself? Everybody does, nobody admits it. (laughs) Talk out loud to yourself? What are you doing when that's happening? Hands down, you're processing something pretty deeply. Maybe it's intense, right? That's what you're doing. You're meditating on it. Do you do that with God's word? Does it intertwine itself with your soul, with your mind so much that you have to process it out loud as you mumble, as you talk to yourself about it? The Bible is not meant to be read by skimming the surface. The Bible is meant to be read slowly, thoughtfully, drilling down deeply into it. I have a colleague and a friend in ministry who is the fastest eater I have ever seen. Uh, You would not believe the pace at which this guy can put down a meal. When we would get together for lunch, once the food had arrived, there were two ways that this was gonna work out. Either this was going to be a very quiet conversation because we're both eating, or I'm gonna be the one doing all the talking. And I once asked him, I said, what's up with that? I mean, you, we're done here in three minutes. We waited 20. And his response was that he's got a pet peeve. He said he can't stand even room temperature food. It has to be hot. He says the longer I wait, the closer it gets to room temperature. And so he puts this, I mean, I've wanted to uh, sign him up for the Coney Island hot dog eating contest they have because I think he would be competitive there. Don't read the Bible like that. Reading the Bible should be like sucking on a piece of hard candy. Not devouring a meal in five or six bites. You gotta take it out of its wrapper. You open it up. Okay? You put it in your mouth. And you roll it around. You roll it around. Don't bite on that. You roll it around. You mull it over. You meditate on it. It should be like sucking on a piece of hard candy. So here's the takeaway. Slow down. Slow down. Learn to linger in the Bible. Learn to linger in it. Dave Mathis writes this. He says, there is simply no replacement for finding a regular time and place 
blocking out distractions, putting your nose in the text of scripture, and letting your mind and heart be led and captured and thrilled by God himself communicating to us in his objective written words. Slow down and linger in the Bible. Three challenges we've looked at so far, craving immediate results. Be patient, Christian. Christian change is more like growing a grapevine than it is downloading an app. Second challenge is avoiding adversity. Adversity taxes our hearts, minds, and souls to improve their overall health. It's spiritual exercise. Don't run from it. Mourn over it while you lean into it. And third, skimming the surface. When it comes to engaging God's word, don't be a scavenger for bits of information. Slow down and linger in the Bible. Fourth, overcomplicating the process. One challenge that we all face in making progress in our walk with Christ is an overly complicated process. The American church in general uh, has made making progress in our walk with Christ too complicated. Uh, In developed nations like the U.S., we have a glut of Christian resources and ministry forms. I mean, even in churches like ours, we have lots of ministries, lots of stuff. Just go take a look at the website. And over the years in ministry, because I've always been a part of churches that are like that, I've talked with enough people to know that at times you feel overwhelmed by what you see. There is something to the argument that says keep the menu simple. So people often feel overwhelmed, inundated, confused about it all. They look at all this and, and they think to themselves, yikes, where do I start? I came face to face with that four or five years ago with a a handful of folks in the church where I was serving. And so what I did is I conducted a focus group. (laughs) I brought together a bunch of different individuals in the church who had been Christians from about five to 10 years and who had demonstrated making solid progress in their Christian walk. And I simply asked them one question and then listened to them talk. The question was this, how did progress in their Christian walk happen for them? I just wanted to know. Let me hear from from you. Now, the variety of answers was endless. Some were a part of this, some were a part of that, some experienced that, someone got connected to that person. There was a variety of things offered, dozens of things that went on to my piece of paper. But after that was over, I retired to my study and I looked through the list and I said, okay, are there commonalities here? Is there anything I see here? that's common among them all. There were lots of different answers offered, but there were four things I noticed they all or most of them had in common. Four things. I thought, well, that's very interesting. Here were the four. Everyone in this group made weekly church attendance a priority. Everyone. Everyone in this focus group had made weekly church attendance a priority. They started scheduling extracurriculars around church instead of scheduling church around the extracurriculars. Second, they made a conscientious choice to read the Bible differently. (laughs) Some of them commented saying before it was kind of, I'd drop it open and just read whatever was in front of me. 
they made a conscientious choice to say, you know what, I'm going to read this differently. I'm going to start in the book of Galatians, and I'm going to work through it slowly. Third, they made communing with God in prayer a daily concern. They made communing with God in prayer a daily concern. And fourth, they all made a commitment to spending time with other Christians. They wanted to be around Christians. Iron sharpening iron. Let us not give up meeting together. Some are in the habit of doing. Very simple. Those four things, out of all the answers given, out of all the varied uh, personalities and generations that were represented in this group, they all had these things in common. They made weekly church attendance a priority. They made a conscientious effort to slow down and linger in the Bible. They made communing with God in prayer a daily concern, and they made it a priority to make sure they were consistently spending time with other Christians. So on the surface, it may look different for all of us. On the surface, it may look different for all of us. But do you have those four things in common with them? It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. It really doesn't. J.R. Tolkien, most if not all of you are familiar with him, author of The Hobbit and uh, Lord of the Rings. I, I just recently learned this about him. He did not initially set out to write fantasy novels. <clears throat> I don't know if you know this about him, but... He did not initially set out to create an entire world called Middle-earth. He first ventured into his brilliant writing career when he read the phrase Middle-earth in an old English manuscript. He read about it in an old English manuscript. That led to him writing a very short poem about Middle-earth. That was in 1914. He was just 22 years old. Three years later, when he's 25, in 1917, he wrote The Fall of Gondolin, which was the first story of his fantasy works. Then, 13 years after that, in 1930, he began telling his children a bedtime story about a strange and funny creature called a hobbit. Seven years after that, his book called The Hobbit was published. The publisher immediately asked Tolkien for a sequel. And 12 years after that, in 1949, he completed the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The trilogy wasn't published for another five years after that, 1954. In other words, from the time he first saw the phrase Middle Earth to the time his masterpiece about Middle Earth was published, it took Tolkien 40 years of creative effort. 40 years. It's a wonderful picture of making progress in the Christian walk. It's a wonderful picture. It's not about the pace at which you're moving. It's about the direction you're heading. Let's pray. Life-transforming God, you've saved us so that we will be like you holy, righteous, patient, content. So I pray that for us. Make us like you, God. As we learn to work out our salvation, grant us patience to see this as a lifelong marathon. Give us faith to lean into adversity and not recoil from it. 
trusting that in the midst of those sufferings, you are working out all things for the good of those who love you. Teach us, God, to slow down. Show us what it means to meditate on your word. God, we thank you for the gift of the church and the instrumental role it plays in helping us make to the finish line of each of our races. We praise you now for all of this and so much more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.